Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I am Marina, and today I am very delighted to talk to Kristen Gotzi, with whom a couple of weeks ago we discussed her newest book, Second World, Second Sex. Today we will be talking about another book of hers, Red Hangover. It was published in 2017 and consists of essays and short stories about the legacies of the 20th century state socialisms. In Red Hangover, Kristen Godsey asks a question that might sound provocative to many. Why are we ready to ignore the less than satisfactory realities of our existing democracies, but we dismiss the communist ideal, reducing it to the state socialism of the 20th century and especially the crimes of Stalinism? The book has 14 chapters divided into four parts, whose titles I will read because I feel they would orientate our listeners quite well in the content of the book we are discussing. So first chapter, first part actually, is called Post-Socialist Freedoms, the second one Reuniting the Divided, the third one Blackwashing History, and the fourth and final one, Democracy is the worst form of government except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So hello, Kristen, and thank you for being on the show today. And I hope I have summarized well the main question of your book. And yeah, I was thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So I was wondering, could you tell us more about how you came to write this book, actually? It's so different from Second World yes. Second Sex. It's <laughs> another type of book. Definitely. So, you know, this is one of those projects that I did not really intend to do. I had a two-year sabbatical between 2014 and 2016. I was basically on leave from my previous job. I'd I'd won a couple of grants, and I spent the first part of that year at the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies. And while I was at Freiburg, it's the case that when you're, especially if you're an American and you're in Europe, Most European institutions, universities and such cannot afford to pay for transatlantic tickets for you to come speak. But if you happen to be based in Europe, they can pay for an inter-European ticket and accommodation. So while I was based in Freiburg this year of 2014, 2015, I received invitations to speak in almost every single East European country. And since, yeah, it was pretty crazy. So in the course of that first year, I was traveling everywhere constantly in Eastern Europe. Um, And many times I I, I flew a a few times, but sometimes I was actually taking trains and driving and buses and things like that. And so I really had this sense of seeing Eastern Europe in 2014, 25 years after the fall of the wall, really from top to bottom, from from Belgrade all the way up to Warsaw. And um, in the following year, I ended up in, in Helsinki. And so I was also in Tallinn and Vilnius and, and Riga. So then the following year, as I said, I moved uh, to Eastern Germany, what was once Eastern Germany. I was based in Jena for five months. And then from Jena, I had a fellowship up in Helsinki. And so I was 
very much steeped in the writing of what was the book Second World, Second Sex that we talked about the last time we were on the, um, you know, we were discussing a book. But what happened was I was in Jena and there was this big neo-Nazi rally. And I could not believe the sight of German neo-Nazis in this little town in the eastern part of Germany. And and I started thinking a lot about, and then of course there was also a counter rally. Uh, the, their sort of leftist, Jena at the time was is a pretty lefty town. And Thuringia, the, the area of Germany where we were based at the time was actually being governed by a red, red, green coalition with uh, Die Linke and SPD and the Greens in charge. And so it, it was definitely these neo-Nazis come to Yenna in order to provoke a counter demonstration and to sort of show their power. Anyway, I started thinking a lot about the right wing. I had been living in Freiburg at the, the beginning of the Pegida rallies. These were this German group uh, p- protecting the Occident against, you know, Islamic invasions and obviously the rise of, of the Alternative for Deutschland, which was this AfD party, which is now a member of the German parliament. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was, I was sort of in the thick, I was living in the middle of all of this sort of rise of the right wing. And and I'll also say that the summer of of 2015, I was still in Germany and it was the Greek, uh, the Eurozone, the Greek crisis. Um, And uh, Varoufakis, Yanis Varoufakis and um, the prime minister of Greece, uh, whose name I am completely blanking on right now, they were in Brussels trying to negotiate, you know, uh, some deal. There was a vote. It was big, big sort of crisis of capitalism and the Germans sort of barred their teeth, I would say. And so, I don't know, I sort of got swept up into the whirlwind of the, the, the failings of contemporary democratic societies and certainly the, the, the failings of contemporary capitalism in Europe. And I started thinking about this in relation to Eastern Europe, because I was also traveling extensively in Eastern Europe at the time. And that summer of 2015, I actually was at a conference in Crete, and I was in Greece at the time, right before they were going to have this um, referendum about whether or not they should accept more austerity. And of course, as I'm sure you know, the Greeks voted no, that they didn't want uh, Tsipras. Alexis Tsipras is the guy, the mm-hmm. prime minister of Greece. As you know, the Greeks voted no against austerity, but then Tsipras basically accepted a deal. They had no choice and they sort of forced the Greeks to accept more austerity. So all of that sort of got me writing and thinking. And I was very much disturbed by what I saw as a willingness on the part, especially I would say of the West Germans but I would say, you know, more broadly uh, across the continent, this idea that, oh, democracy isn't perfect. Oh, capitalism has all its problems. But, you know, we can we can fix it. We can make it. We can work it out. We can, you know, manage it somehow. It's better than any other option. You know, and then this this other discourse in Eastern Europe where, you know, quite a lot of people were saying, well, you know, we have these experiences and everybody wants to talk about our lives as if we lived in one big Stalinist gulag. But that's not really how it was. There was this whole other world behind the Iron Curtain that people don't know about, and yet it's fixed historically in this one period of time. So this is what got you thinking about all these essays that you have? Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing about traveling. Uh, If you're on a bus or a train for a really long time, (laughs) or planes and airports, you know, I would start, I was just writing a lot of reflections. 
And even though I should have really been working on that other book, I, I just couldn't help. It was a way, writing was a way for me to process what was happening in my own mind and in, in the world around me. And if you know, you know, from the preface of this book, you, it starts with me going to this museum and seeing the artifacts of, a, of an East German girl who was at summer camp around the same year that I would have been at summer camp and just sort of thinking about the different experience of the world that we had because she was raised in Eastern Germany and I was raised in, in Southern California. And mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the other thing is it's important in some cases because I think, let's see, this book would have been my seventh book. And I, I've i written a lot of, you know, traditional academic books before. But the one book that precedes this uh, by a couple of years in 2011 was a book called Lost in Transition, which was, again, a series of essays and so- short stories, which in some ways I think is the book that has been most popular in terms of undergraduate teaching. I know a lot of colleagues and I know from my publisher that a lot of people teach that book mm-hmm. because it's very accessible to young people and because it has these small little chunks, right? It's little essays, individual essays, individual stories that can be taught independently of the rest of the book. So for me, I think being on leave and being away from the United States, sort of being away from my institution made me feel a lot more creative and unleashed in terms of being able to write outside of the box and just sort of think through thoughts that were going through my head without really thinking that they needed to be in any particular form for a journal article or for a book chapter or for some op-ed or blog or something else that I was writing. I was just writing for myself. And right. Yeah, it was, it was, that's where it comes from. It comes from a place of trying to understand the world through writing. Yes, my, my impression is also that it's very, uh, very accessible book and very personal um, in a lot of ways. Um, and I wanted us to, I wanted to point the attention of our listeners to the title, which after I had read the book um, and Thank you for writing this book. It was my pleasure to read it. Um, So I find this title very well-fitting. So to give a little bit of context to our listeners, um, I will read a quote from the very last page of your book. Um, Finally, to prevent the ascendance of a resurgent far far right, we need to get past our red hangover and recognize the pros and cons of both liberal democracy and state socialism in an effort to promote a system that gives us the best of both. So could you briefly explain more about this metaphor of the red hangover? I I understand it as a metaphor of both triumphalism and disappointment in an interesting way, but you tell us more about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically this idea... I mean, if you've ever had a hangover, right? <laughs> um, anybody who's ever gone out drinking pretty heavily uh, will know that you sort of wake up in the next, you wake up the next morning and the idea of even smell of alcohol is just so horribly repugnant because, you know, your head is pounding and you feel sick to your stomach and you don't want to eat and you just want to stay in bed and you think, oh God, I'm never going drinking again, Right. And so there's this period of time where you lay in bed and you say you hate yourself and it's full of self-loathing and full of regret. And you're like, I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to do that again. And I sort of feel like, you know, the socialist ideals, (laughs) you know, there was this sort of 20th century binge drinking session with socialism right? after 1989 or 1991, depending on where you are. 
you know, most of the world is basically laying in bed going, oh, God, that was terrible. Why did we do that? That was such a bad idea. I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to flirt with socialism again. And I think that what has happened because of that, the red hangover, is we've allowed the, we've allowed the right wing um, a lot of space and uh, a lot of right wing ideologues, particularly, I mean, we can talk about this in the United States, we could talk about this in Poland or Hungary, we could talk about this in Russia or Turkey or Bulgaria, you know, there's lots of different examples of this. But I think that what's happened is that sort of working class issues, issues of, you know, feeling alienated from capitalism, because the left is basically sitting around nursing this terrible headache from the 20th century, all of those people who might otherwise be attracted to sort of more socialist ideas have been attracted to the right wing. And mm-hmm. so that's the, that's sort of the idea of this red hangover. And, you know, I don't know, different cultures have this saying, but in the United States, we, we have this thing um, called the hair of the dog, which is, you know, sometimes the best way to, to cure a hangover is to drink a little bit of alcohol <laughs> and then the headache goes away. And, you know, I think that maybe, after 30 years of, of nursing this terrible hangover from the, th- from the experience of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe, maybe it's time that, you know, we take a little sip and uh, start to clear our heads and figure out where we go from here. Okay. Uh, yes. Thank you for this explanation. This makes um, even more sense now that you have explained it. Um, so you are often... Uh, humorous and ironic in your writing and one can sense it through the pages um so i was thinking about the um, first uh title of the like the the title of the first part which is post-socialist freedoms and then <laughs> the texts within are nothing but like they're not about freedom at all um so it is an apparent irony um and the the reality that you describe there is very very grim actually it's the freedom to commit suicide freedom of crime freedom to be forgotten and could you briefly talk about what all these oppressions um to the people that you're writing about are uh and how democracy have failed them mm. Oh, this is, a t- this is a tough one. Okay, so the, the thing about this is that there are two competing narratives about the last 30 years. If you ask the economists and the political scientists, and if you look just look at GDP and you look at other indicators of like life expectancy and things like that, you can say that the last 30 years of democracy have been a success for Eastern Europe. Uh, but in another respect, if you look, for instance, at out-migration and demographic decline and mortality issues, the countries of Eastern Europe, the top 10 countries with the fastest shrinking populations in the world are in Eastern Europe. These are countries that probably won't exist in 100 years because they'll be so incredibly depopulated. Also, you have incredible pockets of poverty. You have urban poor, you have rural poor you have the elderly, you have levels of poverty and deprivation that were never seen before 1989. But you only see them if you go outside of the big cities, if you get outside of, of Bucharest, or you get outside of, of you know Warsaw or Sofia or Belgrade or whatever. And I think that 
I mean, and even, I mean, in the outskirts of the big cities, there's a wonderful book by my colleague, Bruce O'Neill, about homeless people and elderly homeless people in Bucharest in Romania. And he talks about how the government is desperately trying to get these people out of the center of the city to warehouse them in the outskirts of the city so that they're not in these urban spaces because nobody wants to see them. Nobody wants to see the losers of transition. And so for me, this part of the book is about is about the people that didn't do well, about all of the poverty and hardship that was created. Because even if you ask the economists and if you ask the political scientists and you say, well, what about the losers? What about the people who didn't thrive after 1989 or 1991? They will say, oh, well, that's their fault because they're communist or, oh, they're just not suited to a global economy or, oh, that's just how capitalism works. There have to be winners and losers. And on the whole, everybody is better off because of democracy and capitalism. And, you know, I mean, this is just a political point of view. And I just as a as a as somebody who is an ethnographer who has been studying the region for as long as I have, you know, I think that we have to take people's suffering seriously. And when people are setting themselves on fire in front of the presidency's office out of despair, we should be paying attention. And the truth of the matter is nobody, I feel, in the World Bank, nobody in the IMF or the European Bank for Reconstruction Development or in the EU is paying attention to the despair of the people who are the quote unquote losers of transition. And so the post-socialist freedom section is really an attempt, my attempt, again, for myself, because you know two of them are essays and two of them are short stories to make sense of the pain and the the suffering, the very real suffering that was um, that has impacted many people in this region of the world that we just ignore because on the whole, things are better. You know, now you can go shopping at um, big shopping malls and you can buy, you don't have to wait 15 years to get an apartment and you can get jeans and Kent cigarettes or whatever it is that you need. So that's great. You can travel and, and you know, there, the, this, the, the, the Stasi are not watching you, but Google is. So Google is somehow better because it's a private corporation rather than the government. But um, the real suffering of the, of the people that have been hurt by this, I think, is often ignored. And I wanted to pay some attention to them. Right. I like it was terrifying to read, this, read these stories. And then it was I also like really felt them maybe because of this, like this kind of like ironic expressions if i if mm-hmm. i can say so um so now another question i have um is about um the forgetful young generation uh, mm-hmm. the one born after 1989 so in chapter mm-hmm. five you describe a celebration of the 25th anniversary of the fall of the berlin wall And then you mentioned that you'll be posting in social media about it. And then there is a short, short sentence that you say that this post will not receive a wide attention in your Tumblr account because most of your Tumblr followers are born after 1989, like suggesting that um, this generation doesn't really care about the um, uh, socialist past or even like to interpret the post-socialist realities. Yeah. So this is not only your observation. Um, I have read a text. I remember reading a text um, by Albena Hranova 
um, maybe maybe you know her, um, mm-hmm. where she um, explores the ignorance and unwillingness of this generation to learn more about socialism. And I also happen to be one of those born after 1989 uh, mm-hmm. in Bulgaria. So I can see that this observation kind of like hold value, holds value. Um, so why do you think this is the fact? Why is this massive oblivion? Why is this apathy? Would you comment on this maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I've thought a lot about this actually because I, you know, I have um, nephews, uh, Bulgarian nephews who are 30 and 26 and they don't live in Bulgaria anymore like so many Bulgarians don't. They live in, in Vienna. But I've often thought about their apathy and their unwillingness to sort of deal with it. And I think some of it is just they don't know who to trust. I think there's a real deep suspicion of all knowledge creation around issues of socialism. And I can give you multiple examples from my personal experience so that they don't trust the official textbooks because they know that those are hyper-politicized if there's even anything in them, right? I mean, you've got places like Ukraine passing laws to tell you what the correct history of socialism is. Mm -hmm. And if you... The media, you know, if, if a newspaper or magazine questions that official history, they can be shut down by the government because they're proposing a different theory of history. I think they there are older, you know, our, your grandparents, uh, my former mother and father-in-law, for instance, of the generation who sort of helped build socialism in Eastern Europe, many of whom are still alive. Obviously, they're suspicious of their narrative because they're nostalgic for their youth and every they think everything was better in the past and the whole world is going to hell now. I mean, that's typical kind of. <laughs> conversation to have right, right. Um, and then there and then there are foreigners right every time I write something uh, about socialism even if it's based on documents in the archive or if it's based on people's personal experiences or I'm looking at photo albums from the 50s then they'll you know they people say well what do you know you weren't born in a socialist country you're an American you know you have no right to say anything like this and then I was just at a conference last week with a, a young colleague of mine. She's 40. So she was, she's, she's Polish and she was 40. She is 40. So she was 10 when communism fell in, in Poland. And she writes a lot about the communist past. And of course, when she writes about the communist past, they say, well, you're too young. You don't understand. Uh, you don't know what it was really like because you were only 10 when it fell. So you can't trust the textbooks. You can't trust your grandparents, you can't trust the young people, and you can't trust the foreigners to tell you the truth about what happened in your own country for 40 years, if we're talking about Eastern Europe, or 70 years if we're talking about the Soviet Union. So I think there's an incredible amount of suspicion and distrust, which then leads people to just be apathetic. They're like, if I can't know the truth, I don't want to know that. I don't care because I, I don't know what, you know, it's sort of an epistemological crisis. How do you know? what you know. And I think that much of the current discourse, if you think about in Eastern Europe, places like uh, Romania have the Institute for Studying the Crimes of Communism, or in in Bulgaria, there's an Institute for the Study of the Recent Past. All of these places are invested in producing the most negative, negative images of the communist past possible. There are these institutes across Eastern Europe. And so, of course, they're the ones who are doing all this epistemic deplatforming and they have incredible power 
to silence people who question their narrative. So I think, yeah, it's an epistemological crisis for many, many young people born in the region. How do you find an objective worldview about this past through which your own parents and obviously your grandparents lived? Right. Um, I remember what you have written about the exposition in the museum of, how was it in English, about the the Museum of Socialist Past, um, like the one in Sofia and how it has changed. Yes. Yes. Um, it's the, it's the, it was the, it's called the institution. It's the museum of a socialist art, right? Is what they, oh, they wanted to call yeah. it totalitarian art, but they, they settled on the socialist art, but it was a huge controversy. What to call that museum. Mm-hmm. It was a huge controversy because the original exhibit was just a celebration of art that was created during that period of time. And then the second exhibition, as I talk about in the book was this really totalitarian art, right? With all of these pictures of, you know, busts of Lenin and things like that and Stalin. And, you know, so it's, 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 there's still a fight going on in this part of the world over who gets to control this history. And I mean, it's not only by the way, in Eastern Europe, it's happening in the United States too, right? We have our own um, victims of communism foundation that does everything possible to produce as much negative anti-communist literature as possible. I mean, it's, this is pervasive. This is not just in Eastern Europe. I just think in Eastern Europe, it affects young people in a particular way. And I should add, you know, it is worth mentioning here that some young people, uh, and I have actually experienced this as well, do the opposite, right? Which is that they say, oh, communism is great was great. Like all of the stories about the gulag and the secret police and the travel restrictions and the consumer shortages, those are just lies that they're trying to tell us. And I think that's also problematic. I, you know, I don't think that happens as much, but it does happen sometimes. People can be very uncritical about the past. They can romanticize the past. And so what I'm trying to say is we have to have a, a scholarly discussion or an informed political discussion about the past. That's what I'm hoping that my work allows people to do. And I'm very sympathetic to the idea that I'm not a, a Bulgarian or, or Pole or, or Czech or Slovak or German, you know, East German or whatever, Romanian. I understand that people are going to be critical of my point of view. And I also understand that they're going to be critical of my younger East European colleagues' point of view. And I understand that they might be a little dubious of my older East European colleagues' point of view. But if you're going to deplatform all of us, <laughs> right, and you're going to say none of you have any right to say anything that's complicating this larger totalitarian narrative, then that narrative never gets complicated. And so I think that we all need to work together in a community to do our best to really engage with some of these important questions about, you know, what was the history of state socialism in Eastern Europe? How did people experience it? What what were the real, you know, um, downsides? Obviously, there were many, but there were also some, some positive things. And can we talk about those? On the note of positive things, um i I have a question for you, uh, so mm-hmm. I got the impression that you argue in your book uh, that people under state socialism were having sex or were <laughs> having pets or were pursuing education for just the pure pleasure of it or because they like it um because mm-hmm. they don't have this measuring um how to say it uh, because they don't have like this first financial insensitive for some of these things or they don't have this measurized view on those things that like dogs 
are good for kids because they teach them to be responsible, let's say, or something. <laughs> right, uh, right. So could you tell us more about this idea of a better life quality under state socialism? Because I feel that this is something that some people might contest. So it's interesting oh, of course. to hear yeah. your perspective on this. Right. And, you know, of course, this is a bit of an, an anachronistic uh, argument because I'm, I'm sort of projecting back to, to the past uh, what is a very much a contemporary uh, condition in terms of the neoliberalization of the self. So what I try to talk about in the book, you know, and what I've done in my other work is to say, okay, we, if we want to know what effects the arrival of kind of turbo capitalism has on the individual, we need to look around the world and, and look for a natural experiment. And the natural experiment that I have found that I know the most of is the collapse of state socialism in 1989 or 1981 and the coming of capitalism and what that does to people's individual subjectivity. So the, the question is, is there a way, is there a certain way of being in the world that was unique to these countries because they had less uh, influence in terms of market economy? Um, in terms of, of, you know, and you could put this in a negative way, in the sense that hard work didn't really pay off, in the sense that you didn't have the kinds of opportunities that you have now in a, in a capitalist economy, you know, to leave the country if you want to live abroad, to, you know, um, go into business and be an entrepreneur and sell people things that they don't need or whatever it is that you want to do. So, so you know, different people look at this question differently. But my point in looking at this is uh, as a natural experiment. And what I, what I have found in the ethnographic literature and what I write about in this book and I've written about elsewhere is this idea that the neoliberalization of the self requires a, an, a sort of an unfettered market whereby you're constantly investing in your human capital because you think that investments in yourself, the kind of crafting of a particular personality or a crafting of a particular persona or, or, or the acquisition of a certain set of skills is going to allow you to, to succeed on the market. And so that every relationship, every action, everything that you do becomes a way of, of creating, uh, to use a Bourdieuian term, the, um, of cultivating the habitus, the habitus that's necessary for you to succeed in a capitalist economy. This is an argument that many people have made. You know, Wendy Brown talks about this. Nancy Fraser talks about this. More recently, a guy called uh, Malcolm Harris wrote a beautiful book about this called The Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials. This way in which all everything that we do becomes subsumed to this market logic. And, 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 and I have argued, obviously, that our intimate relations are becoming increasingly subsumed to market logic. So here's what the ethnographic literature on socialism that I have read so far clearly points is that people, you know, again, this is a negative thing because people didn't have the same sorts of opportunities because there weren't these, you know, markets because people were guaranteed a certain level of social security and economic stability. They, even if you had to live with your parents, you had an apartment and you had heat and you had healthcare and you had uh, opportunities uh, for education for your children to a certain extent, there was less of this constant investment and attention to the cultivation of the personal individual human capital of the habitus in order to succeed. The habitus of socialism was different. This is not a newsflash to anybody. The mm -hmm. habitus of socialism is going to be particular to socialism. But 
people like Maria Todorova, you know, people um, who have done research in Eastern Europe on, you know, various populations talk about one of the things that people miss the most is the unique sociality of socialism. There was a way in which you did things because you did them, not because you were investing in your own human capital for later use on in a market economy. You did them because you did them. Now, some people were working the system. They joined the Consumal. They joined the party. They were thinking of their careers in this non-market way or whatever. Um, but a lot of people who weren't interested in joining the party or who weren't interested in becoming members of the Consumal, they just sort of lived their lives and they had relationships and they did things independent of these kinds of market logics. And that's the thing that I'm really interested in studying. So I'm not trying to romanticize the past. And a lot of people have accused me of doing that. I'm trying to understand comparatively how the habitus of socialism allows us to think about what a non-capitalist habitus would look like. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, it does make sense. Um I had a question here. Um, it's maybe not really related to what you um, what you said, but I was also thinking about everything that you had in this chapter, where it is. Um, what was the name of the chapter once again? Um, the one about uh, uh, people having sex, better sex under socialism. This <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there. So, like, a question in parentheses while we are on the topic. Um, so, there you say, like, you see pornography as um, capitalist commodific commodification of sex, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, but, and I, I agree here. But what strikes me, and I would like a comment from you as a person who... And as a person and a researcher who has invested so much time studying Eastern Europe, what mm -hmm. strikes me is that Bulgaria, like after the fall of communism and like why I was growing up, basically, Sofia and Bulgaria were covered with all these very pornographic posters <laughs> advertising yes, alcohol and cars and I have traveled to other countries, Western countries, uh, around the same time that we have had, and we still have these posters, actually. And like in Germany or here in Canada, I don't really see such posters. So I'm, could you kind of like reflect on, on this, on pornography, like in the context of post-socialism and why is it embraced in this way and so much? by countries which previously uh, didn't have such attitude to, to sex. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are two things. The first is obviously it was banned, right? Right, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This couldn't, is the... couldn't get it before, right? So I think that the, the thrill of some of that imagery is still there for you know, many people who grew up under socialism. And they're, you know, they're, you know, I have spoken you know, to people who talk about the erotic you know, deficit of, of socialism, right? Like that there wasn't mm -hmm. enough pornography, right? Um, right. There, there were, you know, now, and again, I think that's, you know, that's in some ways that's specific to certain countries. I mean, obviously Bulgaria was on the pruder side of the spectrum. Yugoslavia had its own kind of state-run soft porn magazine and certainly Eastern Germany and, and Czechoslovakia were much more open about sexuality. I mean, Bulgaria was in the middle here. But yeah, but I think after socialism, it was just this explosion 
of this these images that were, let's face it, pretty degrading to women, right. largely. Um, right. And then, you know, the second part of the question is it just works as long as it still works in Bulgaria to sell people cars and beer and tires by putting a, you know, very low or mastica. You know, I remember these these ads where girls, they had these bikini tops that were watermelons. They were so um, right, right. They were so outrageous. But but they work if if if, you know, if you're the head of an advertising agency and your goal is to get people to buy more beer or your brand of beer or your brand of mastica, then it makes sense to use the advertising that's a strategy that's going to be most effective. And it turns out that that's really effective still. And so I think it's, it is a reflection of this commodification of women that didn't really exist before. And it's, you know, if you grow up, I, 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 I completely sympathize with this because these images are just everywhere and they, they feel kind of, you know, I don't know what the what the right word is, but it's it's definitely a noticeable difference between a, a major East European capital and let's say Western Europe or the United States or Canada for that matter. It's just a different sense of how um, you're you're going to represent sexuality, and in 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 the case of in the case of you know after 1989, sexuality is something that is used to sell things. <laughs> And I think that it's important to to reflect on the fact that sexuality wasn't always used to sell things in that way. And and that in and of itself is an important difference. It's just a fact. It's, you know, it's not a big conspiracy. It's just a reality, right? If you you are going to use women's bodies, uh, you know, in a particular way to sell things, you are commodifying sexuality. You're making people feel insecure. You're saying, hey, mister, you on the street if you drink my brand of mastica, then you will be able to have sex with a woman who looks like this. That's what the message is, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of ridiculous that it works, but it does work because people are feeling insecure and they think, oh, sexuality is something that, is, that, is a, that, is, that has a market and I can increase my market value by drinking this kind of drink. I mean, that's how a lot of advertising works, right? Yeah, uh, just my, my question was rather because... Uh, was rather why it does work so well in 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 the post socialist countries mm-hmm. like and it's not so much the case like i guess it would work maybe in other countries as well but it's just banned there um to have this kind of posters so like this particular... i think there's more of a backlash against those kinds of posters right i mean these really really degrading images often get backlash right so feminist groups We'll call them out, um, you know, advertising alliances. There are, you know, groups that protect children or something like that. I mean, I do think there's just a lot more activism in the West around the kinds of images that are going to be put up in public spaces. Um, and certainly, you know, to the extreme in, in a place like the United States, if if somebody put up a mastica, you know, a, a poster like that in their office, you know, some of their female colleagues could say that they're creating a hostile work environment, right? I mean, there have been cases like that. So I just think there's a lot more sensitivity around the fact that these images make people very uncomfortable (laughs) and children uncomfortable, right? Then, Then in Eastern Europe, where the idea is that we should be free to do whatever we want because we were banned, you know, we were prohibited from doing all these things for so long. I mean, I do think that, um, there's this wonderful article. I can't remember if I mentioned it in my last recording with you. Uh, Zombie socialism by these young Romanian scholars, and they talk about the way that constant reference to the communist past is used to justify lots of terrible things in the present. 
like, and, and I think one of the things in the present that it's used to justify is um, anti-feminism and anti, you know, a lot of anti-women, anti-gender sentiments, right? The idea that, that somehow the communist past sort of gave women, you know, supported women in this really generous way is one reason to reject any sort of idea of feminism. So, I mean, people have written about that. That's, that's not my idea. That's an idea that's been floating around for a long time. But I do think there's something to that. The zombie socialism articles talk specifically about social rights. Like if you want to, you know, build a, a great, better public transportation, or you want to, you know, reduce uh, university fees or do something that requires the state, people will scream socialism. And essentially what zombie socialism allows the elites to do is to justify an inequitable distribution of wealth in the present day by referring to any efforts to tax and redistribute that wealth as socialism. Right, right. Uh, thank you for this comment. This was really very much in parentheses because your book doesn't really talk about um, pornography as much. Um, so um, this was very maybe out of the out of what you have expected to be asked. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I also think here as a comment that maybe here it's also again this apathy that we have discussed of um of people in this uh post-socialist countries who wouldn't really react because they don't uh think that it makes sense to react um Mm -hmm. like even those that would be opposed would say this is degrading or something would say like nothing is ever gonna change if i'm uh if i say my opinion so this might also contribute uh, to to why these things continue to to be there. And also, I mean, let's just face it, the, uh, the people who might actually say something and protest, they've left. <laughs> yeah. There's so few young people, right? Uh, the the, the, the out-migration statistics from a place like Bulgaria or Romania are huge, right? There's been a massive exodus of, of young people who settle in the West and don't really have intention to come back. You know, they might come back in the summers for a couple of weeks, but they don't really intentionally think to make long-term life in, in Bulgaria or, or Romania or wherever. And so why fight, why fight it? You know, I think I was there in 2013 when you had the first protest in February and then you had these huge civic protests in Sofia in the summer of 2013, which mm-hmm. was, you know, in the lead up to writing this book. And people really thought that things were going to change. And look, I mean, as I say in the book, you know, Borisov is still prime minister. Yes, he is. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, you, you can go out on the streets and you can do all sorts of things. You can try to make a difference, but if you don't feel like anything is going to change, it's not only that you become apathetic, it's that you leave. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so um, you have summarized the political debates i'm com- i i want to go back to the to the book um so you have summarized the political debates of the cold war period um in a sentence that i think it's best to quote uh so it says um where the united states guaranteed rights such as freedom of speech religion assembly and private property the soviet union guaranteed rights such as full employment and state provision of a basic social safety net through which, at least theoretically, no one would be allowed to fall, uh, end of quote. So in your personal opinion, are these sets of rights mutually exclusive? So some of the debates around them have been putting them in this opposing light. So mm-hmm. could we have both sets sets of rights 
What is your opinion on this? Obviously, that is the ideal as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right. Right? I, think the, I think the reason that they are often considered mutually exclusive is because that, that was the position of the Soviet Union and the United States at the United Nations during the Cold War. To the extent that the Soviet Union and its allies were pushing for social and economic rights, they would say, well, in order to have these, we have to have certain kinds of you know, uh, policies about preventing dissent. And in order, and, so, and the United States would say the opposite, right? In order for us to have full political freedoms, we can't guarantee people any sort of social safety net because that impinges on the freedoms of people to get rich, rich and the freedoms of employers and so on and so forth. So I think they've always been in opposition. But obviously, at the end of the book, I say very clearly that I'm, you know, hoping that there is a world in which we can have the political freedoms of speech and assembly and religion and thought and travel and so on and so forth, but combine it with some sort of world in which we have rights, human rights, that include some form of guaranteed employment and a basic social safety net that allows us to thrive so that we're not living in this precarious gig economy and taking out, you know, bucket loads of student debt and selling our affections and our attentions on the internet to the highest bidder. I think that there is a way in which You know, there was a vision of the world that was going to try to reconcile these two things and it didn't happen. I'm definitely, it's clear that it hasn't happened. You know, I think some societies may have gotten closer than others, but, you know, if we, particularly if you look at places perhaps like Scandinavia, but I, I do think that's the ideal. They're not mutually exclusive. They shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but unfortunately, especially in the United States, because the United States is still a hegemon. The United States, if you listen to any kind of popular discourses now against people like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the whole narrative is if we allow any form of socialism, even something like healthcare, which, as you know, they have in Canada and the UK and everywhere else, mm -hmm. um, our, their, our basic freedoms will be violated, right? They're going to take away your hamburgers and your pickup trucks. They're going to take away your ability to take, to take a plane ride. You know, all of the scaremongering in the United States by people who are anti-socialism or anti-democratic socialism or anti-social democracy, I mean, because basically we're talking about social democracy when we're talking about Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, it's all framed in this language of human rights, of basic fundamental freedoms. People on the right will say, it's liberty, you have to defend liberty, and liberty requires that we don't have health care, that we don't pay for higher education, that we don't have maternity leaves, that we don't have kindergartens and creches. That's liberty. The liberty to succeed requires no state intervention in the economy. And I think that's the problem, is that language still very much exists in the United States, less so in Europe, and less so even more in Scandinavia, but it's still very prevalent. So yes, like my impression of this book was very like a very interesting thing and I think it, each book about the past should achieve this. Um it was about the past but it was also about the present and the future. So um it definitely has a message and I think that you just just phrased it. <laughs> you just expressed <laughs> the message of the of the whole book in a way. Um and I had another question, which really kind of like personally bothers me in a way. Um, so I don't know whether you have read some of the writings of uh, Georgi Markov, um, mm -hmm. who has um, escaped from like he, he's a kind of like a dissident from the mm -hmm. communist regime. And he, he has been really, really critical about it 
um, like the communist regime in Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And I clearly remember one of um, one of one of his writings was very much talking about this um, looking for an enemy everywhere. Um, uh, I'm I might need to explain more, but like the whole communist project in Eastern Europe, the way that I know about it, let's say it like this, let's phrase it like this, was based on this idea of always looking for an enemy, which could be an internal or an external enemy. And it's it was a lot, there was a lot of like witch hunt that mm-hmm. employed Marxist the revolutionary language that these people, those are like our enemies, they're the bourgeois, they're... Um, they're exploiting us and so on. Um, and having an enemy is very, very convenient for um, authoritarian, I'd say, government. And it helps manipulate popular opinions. So it's not, it's maybe not characteristic of only the socialist regime because um, uh, a right-wing regime would would also look for an enemy. Like, 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 um, Hitler was uh, pointing out to the Jews in this very same way, right? Like for, mm-hmm. like or Donald Trump blaming. with the Mexicans, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but um, but still, this looking for an enemy was a main explanation for intercepting people, for imprisoning them, for killing many people. So this is the so hated Stalinism that you want to escape. Uh, yeah, like yeah. because it's it's really a, it's not right to reduce state socialism to Stalinism, but still, um, it happened you, absolutely. It yeah. happened, yes. And do you think that the socialist project is like even possible without this kind of like polarizing that makes people look for uh, enemies, and those who are differently thinking are the enemies, and so on. So does this? even kind of like exist somewhere or is it possible? Yeah. So that's a great question. So the one thing I want to say is it absolutely happened. Uh, you know, we, we talk about this, the purges in, in the Soviet Union in the thirties and all of the, the horrible sort of kangaroo courts and trials show trials that happened in the late forties and the 1950s across Eastern Europe as these communist parties consolidated power, obviously with the support of Stalin so I think that we should never ignore that. It should always be discussed that any attempt to pretend that that's not an important part of the history of 20th century state socialism is wrongheaded. And I think that that's, I get very angry when people try to pretend that I'm not paying attention to that part of the mm-hmm. history. The, the left side of history, which is one of my other previous books, deals very specifically with that period of time, because as I'm sure you know, many of the people who were purged in all of these cases, were in some ways the more ideologically pure communists, the people who mm-hmm. really believed in the in the larger project, and really thought that they were creating an alternative worldview, and they wanted to do something for the people, so to speak. And and then the sort of opportunistic leaders, the much more paranoid leaders, the much more aggressive leaders, are the ones who come into power and purge all of the real idealists. And I think that that's a part of the history that we need to deal with, like. It's not just that there was paranoia. It's not like, you know, they suddenly drank this, they read this communist text and they suddenly became paranoid and they started going crazy. It was that 
there were these real fissures in be- between different factions of the party. As you, I'm sure you know from history, leftists mm-hmm. have been very good at forming circular firing squads. They tend to turn on each other. The minute the revolution is won, they go after each other. So this is a big problem with leftist politics in general. It has been a problem from the very beginning. I think personally, it's still a problem. And that the minute any sort of successful social movement uh, is achieved, social you know, revolution or social ideology is achieved, often the people who work together to achieve that turn on each other. Now, it happens that in Eastern Europe, they turned on each other in this really, really horrible way. And I, I can't, you know, I, I'm not a fortune teller. So yes, that happened in the past. Your question is, is it bound to happen always forever in the future? And that is the question I just don't know the answer to. I'm hoping that it's not. I hope that if there is an experiment with some of these ideas, that it won't be a totalitarian or authoritarian version of these ideas, that there's, again, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this combination of political rights with economic rights, and that there's always a risk when you're creating a societal upheaval of any type, that there's going to be this factionalization and infighting, and that that can quickly turn to brutality. So I think that when we talk about 20th century state socialism and, and, and communism in particular in Eastern Europe, I think that we have to talk about this period. The, the writings of people like Georgi Markov are really important. And, you know, there are many, many books about this period of history. In fact, this is the period of communist history that we probably know the best because mm-hmm. it's been so well researched and so well written about. And that young people should read those histories as well. They should be front and center. They should not be ignored. But I do think to to say, okay, this thing happened in the 20th century, therefore, all of the ideas associated with the people who committed those crimes are forever tainted by those crimes is a problem. Because as I've pointed out in the book, in the United States, things like democracy, our concept of democracy here, is can be very clearly linked with genocide against the Native American population, can be linked with slavery, can be linked with the massive unemployment and you know human suffering of the Great Depression, can be linked with Japanese internment camps and Jim Crow and lynching. But when we think about democracy, we don't link the concept of democracy specifically to the most negative examples of the history of, the demo- of democracy. And of course, we could look at Britain and look at the Boer War. We could look at the Bengal famine. There are all sorts of examples of terrible things that have happened in the name of capitalism and democracy but we don't reduce the entire history of capitalism and democracy to those terrible things. But when we look at the history of communism or the history of state socialism, we reduce the entire history to these specific things. And that's, I mean, I understand this is a very nuanced point to make, and it may sound like I'm trying to be an apologist for Stalin, which I am not. I think we should recognize those crimes. They existed. There were purges and labor camps and gulags. However, those don't, become the entire history of communism and socialism. And they they certainly shouldn't limit the entire future of these ideologies, because that just that just seems uh, like a weird internal contradiction, which is another point that I try to make in this book. Mm -hmm. And it is it. I think this relates to what we have talked in the previous interview about, like the winners writing the history history. Mm -hmm. so um it's it's a lot of this in this 
um, reducing the so- uh, of socialism to Stalinism. And then it wouldn't really make sense to have so many uh, nostalgic people of the past if it was all repressions, right? If it was all um, interception and killing and no freedom at all. So people have found something to be nostalgic about and we shouldn't maybe dismiss them um, about being nostalgic. Like I, I remember you quoting Jana Hensel, which, um, mm-hmm. whose book I have also read in the past. And um, she kind of like described very much her everyday life as a child um, in Eastern Germany. And I, I remember being very impressed and the whole idea of this everyday life being lost, to- totally lost, as and how she took this as a personal, personal grief in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really remember this book, and it kind of like has impacted my way of thinking about the past, the socialist past, which I tend to see mostly through the this more, let's say repressive lens so mm-hmm. for me reading your book was um very informative very and also because it was so accessible and very provocative in a way make me it made me think about the past and it really achieves this um aim to complicate the history um so yes um I'm yeah. glad that, that, that it had that effect because I think that, you know, it's not without controversy, so to speak. And it's not just me who's doing this. I think there are young, like you mentioned, Jana Hensel, but there are also young scholars in the region, many of them, by the way, who are studying in Western universities, but are from the region, who are also trying to do this work. And there's an incredible mm-hmm. hostility to this work. So in some ways, it makes me, it delights me that you saw the the, the, the sort of difficult process of trying to complicate what is you know, admittedly, a very complicated history with a lot of repression in it. But as you point out, the fact that people are nostalgic, it's not just a mass delusion, which I think is what a lot of people want to say, that it's just this massive delusion that people are having, that the past was somehow better. But it's it has to do with the loss of, the, as I mentioned earlier, the sociality and, and also this sense of economic stability and social security that people just don't have anymore. And Yes, it comes at this terrible cost. It shouldn't have to come at that cost, but it did. And But people do remember it. And I think that we shouldn't just discount them for remembering it. Yes, I, I agree here. And I would like to have like a final question um, that's on a little bit kind of like lighter note sure. uh, <laughs> about uh, one of my maybe personal favorites in your book, uh, which was about which was uh, a tale of two typewriters because it was so <laughs> yes. light and so in a way humorous, but still dealing with all these questions. Um, so, um, and I also felt like somehow your personality and you combining this like imaginary and humorous, but also these all like difficult questions and these political things. Um, so my question about it would be, um, maybe I should say to, for the listeners that you dare talk about two typewriters. One of them produced uh, and owned in twes- in Western Germany, and the other one produced and owned in Eastern Germany. Um, 
So could you briefly discuss on this whole idea of objects being able to reflect history mm-hmm. and the importance of everyday life when imagining the past? Sure. Yeah, so I wrote that First of all, I'm a big typewriter collector, so I have a huge passion for manual typewriters. And while I was in Germany, I was collecting a lot of them. So I end up with these two really interesting typewriters that have very different histories based in these two different economic systems. And at the time, I was reading a lot of the new materialisms literature and this idea of trying to decenter the human and really think about objects and their, the ways that they create narratives of history. Mm-hmm. And so it was an attempt for me to try to get at a new materialist view of history of this sort of state socialist history uh, compared to West, you know, Western German, East German versus West German history through these objects. Um, and then of course I end up anthropomorphizing the objects because I just can't help it. I want, you know, I want there to be voices. And so I just sort of gave up on, on trying to make it. And I also felt like it was a little boring just telling the history of these two objects without giving them a voice. So I, I let them speak in the, in the, in the chapter. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, and what I, what was so fun about that was that here were these two very garden variety objects, just two manual typewriters. And they exist, you know, one of them I bought, you know, from like a flea market and the other one I bought in an antique store. And, and, and I started thinking about their histories and I love the history of everyday life. And the ways in which our everyday material realities are what really truly shape our sort of larger ideological constructs. And I think this is where people, to come back exactly to your previous question, when we think about state socialism and communism in Eastern Europe, we think about the ideology and we think about the repressive apparatus, the structural things that were very negative about it. But we don't pay enough attention to the material realities of people of people's everyday life. And if you sink down to the very basic things of people's cupboards and people's bookshelves and people's typewriters and you know people's uh, villas and dachas and and people's uh, experiences of of being at the seaside and and you know and uh, the colorful beach towel or whatever that you might have had, the the material reality of people's lives is what people remember about the past. They, it's very easy to forget the ideology when the ideology changes. It's the objects, it's the way we interact with these material things often that are the things that sort of um, ground our memory and ground our experience of a certain period of time. So you know you. If you have the experience of, of an olfactory memory where you smell something and it suddenly brings you back like 20 years, like, oh, my God, it's the most powerful memory, these sensory things. And so the, the, the importance of, of what I think of a social history or of cultural anthropology, ethnography, the kind of work that I'm interested in doing is precisely to tell the, the, the stories of ordinary people and to tell the stories of ordinary objects. I'm not so interested in the larger superstructure. I'm not so interested in the larger, you know, ideological questions. I really want to experience things from the bottom up. And I think that that's, that's a part of the story. Those are, those are stories and narratives that don't always get told, but that need to be told because they give us a very different view on not only the past, but I would say our, our present. Yes, exactly. I feel the same way. And this is my, um, why I have chosen to like, study anthropology in the first place and yes so I was wondering like just like a fun question added to this um to the last one so if you could 
like curate the exhibition a Bulgarian socialist past what kind mm-hmm. of like objects would you include if you oh. could, like think of your like on the top of your mind um, right there's actually a lovely book called uh, an inventory of socialism yes i, I remember yeah. this yes. yes i was thinking yeah. about it while I'm asking exactly you yeah. and so yeah and and also um i don't know if you read the book sots gourmet which is also about sort of cooking uh there's a great sort of, i think it's like a cookbook a history of cuisine bulgarian cuisine from socialism no so, i haven't I, read this one. Oh, you should get this one it's really really fun Um, but I think, yeah, I, I, the inventory is the thing, all of these little, these little things that are collected there, right. The bomboni and the, um, the little, you know, uh, sashes, the, 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 the young pioneer pins and the hats and the dolls and the, and the plastic trucks, you know, the Maritza typewriters there, there, I mean, I'm a big, you know, fan of the Maritza, Maritza two typewriter basically. So there are all these very, Um, material things and and they are still in people's homes you know when when I'm in Sofia I, I'm always on the lookout for things that were you know manufactured before 89 I'm, I'm always curious what has survived you know mm-hmm. and I think a lot of things material things blankets and sheets pillowcases right um, if they haven't been thrown away they they're still around and there are these material aspects of people's lives especially um, I think if I wanted, if I were to do it with my friends, a lot of my friends, especially who grew up and, you know, who were like teenagers or young adults in the eighties, because there wasn't a lot of fashion, you know, as, as you can imagine, there, there wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of Western fashion people, uh, most of the women and, and quite a few of the men um, either designed clothes and, and, and sewed them themselves. So they made these clothes that were, that were sort of based vaguely on Western fashions, but they were kind of like adapted. So people bought material and they made these clothes. And those, a lot of people who made clothes in the 80s have kept them because they couldn't bear to throw them away, you know, because they put a lot of effort into making them. So it would be really fun to show the creativity, I think, of late socialism, people's wardrobes and how they like maybe made like fake Nike sneakers or <laughs> they made <laughs> fake Adidas uh, track pants or things like that. Um, in addition to the the kind of very material inventory of socialism, which has, I think, already been done in that lovely book. And then I would love to do, you know, these sort of cooking things, right? The way that people got really creative with food. Um, you know, if you have Sirena and Kashkaval, like those are your major cheeses, right? You can't do all the fancy things with cheeses that you can do in the West when you're cooking Western cuisine. But, you know, I was always surprised at how creative people could be with white cheese and yellow cheese. (laughs) You know, it's amazing that all the sorts of different dishes you could have with just these two basic types of cheeses. So I think it would be a really fun exhibition actually to do. Um, And it would, it would require a lot of, you know, curating of, of people and, you know, having people go through their, people go through their old, you know, their basements and, and their old suitcases and figuring out what they have left from that era. And of course, the other thing is the, the photographs and the photo albums. And to the extent that people have images from the past, I think those are also really interesting to talk about because people, people have stories about those pictures, where they were, what they were doing, who they were with. And I think those are also really important narratives to hear that we often don't hear because we don't really care about, you know, individual people's personal photo albums. But that would be a fun exhibition as well. 
Yeah, you you should think of like organizing such a thing maybe yeah. in the future. <laughs> if you have time. Like eighties like like eighties fashion, you know, a homemade eighties fashion would be a really fun <laughs> Whoa, really, yeah. Like, like 80s music and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this would be really a fun thing to do and also valuable because people would remember and it would it would trigger memories and it would trigger stories maybe to be told um i i just find such things so great um yeah yeah absolutely i do think that you know i, I want to emphasize people you were so creative you know in you know when you didn't have a mall with endless choices to choose from you got you got creative and people were you know incredibly thoughtful about curating fabrics and buttons and, you know, bits of lace and, you know, because the eighties was a weird fashion decade, neon things. So (laughs) you had to be really creative in order to make the clothes look a particular way. And I, you know, you see pictures from that era and I think, wow, it's, you know, again, I don't want to romanticize it, but I do think that it shows the tenacity of the human spirit, that people are going to have fun and dress nice and make meaning out of their lives, no matter what the larger political situation is, that that we know for sure. That's that's just a pervasive historical reality. And, and we should be attentive to the ways in which people negotiate power and authority to make you know, their lives a little bit less depressing, a little bit more joyful, because that's what we all really want in the end, at the end of the day, right? Right, right. So I think I have taken you a lot of time with this interview. It's already an hour. Um, So um, I was wondering, um, we could close up with a question that's, so the the book is written two years ago. So if you Mm -hmm. would write the book today, um, would there be things that you would include um, from the past two years? Like, do you have a change of the perspective or just more things to add or yes? I think the, yeah. So I think that at the time that I was writing the book, I probably felt a, li- a, a little bit apocalyptic after Brexit and the election mm-hmm. of Trump. Right. Uh, I definitely, I definitely think at, at that moment it felt really awful. Um, <laughs> and you know, looking at, for instance, Kaczynski in Poland or Orban in, in Hungary, and sort of, you know, but also Le Pen in France and things like that. So I think I was definitely feeling a little bit more bleak than now that the latest European elections, the right wing, the far right wing, didn't do as well as people feared. And there's a limit to the appeal of some of these really right-wing ideologies. And I also think that the left, in its own fits and starts, <laughs> is sort of getting itself together. Uh, and I, don't, I, I, I hoped that that would happen, I guess, but I wasn't sure how it was going to happen. And the success of somebody like Bernie Sanders in the United States or the popularity of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or you know, the, the, somebody like Kevin Kuhnert in, in Germany who's the youth leader of the SPD, there is, there is movement and there are people who are standing up and who are resisting. And I think that I maybe underestimated a little bit. I was feeling a little depressed <laughs> living in Europe <laughs> in 2014, 2015, 2016, and maybe, and especially coming back to the United States in 2016 with Trump as president was, was difficult for me. But, but again, I think that there, there, there is hope and maybe I would have tried to be a little bit more hopeful. Uh, 
but a book is what it is. It is, it's who you are when you wrote it. And the book was published in 2017, but it's important to realize that it was written in 2015, 16. So I think that it reflected the anxiety that I felt in Europe at the time with the rise of things like Pegida and the AFD and the resurgence of the right. So yeah, so that's the only thing that I would change. I think that maybe I was a little bit too paranoid and that I would I would dial it back a little bit and say, hey, there are really more concrete ways to fight this um, and we sh- if we work together and we find common cause. But as I said, you know, it, the book is where you were when you wrote it, so. Yes, yes, of course. So thank you so much for this interview, for this conversation. I find that we touched about um, upon a lot of things and really thank you for giving me your time in this way and maybe we will do another interview we'll see yes <laughs> you're so productive well, you so much. <laughs> you <laughs> have so many books <laughs> to talk about yeah yeah so but for now I think I'm just uh I'm I'm kind of I need to do a lot of reading I'm in I'm in the I'm in the moment right now where I'm going to be reading a lot um, I want to catch up on what other people are saying and I'm going to, I'm hoping that, you know, there are a lot of really smart people out there, but especially scholars in the region and from the region who are doing really important work. And I think that there's a, there is a moment here where we can all learn from each other. And so I'm hoping that we can also build these communities, intellectual and, and scholarly and activist communities across you know, generations as well as borders. Um, and so that's my, my, my current state of mind is is one of consumption rather than production (laughs) (laughs) okay okay so good luck with with reading and connecting with other authors and uh, i'm glad we had you today and have a good day thanks yeah you too all right bye-bye bye bye